Acts chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great works and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And we'll skip to verse 35 now. And this is Stephen addressing the council. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us, as for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt. We do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the, worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, 
brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. This is God's word to us today. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks again for this day. This is the day that your Son has risen. What a glorious day to gather and meet together. And so we pray now that as we hear from this word, uh, this word that seems big, this word that does seem a bit remote from our lives, we ask that you'll help us. Holy Spirit, do your work now. Help us receive this word as it is, the very words of God. Help us to hear faithfully, to listen with ears that are not hard-hearted, to listen with ears that are soft, to not have stiff necks, to receive this word with gladness. And we pray that it will comfort those who are afflicted and it will challenge those who are just comfortable. For we ask this for your glory our growth and our joy together in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I need to start today's uh, sermon with an important announcement. Sorry. Um, if you didn't know, um, we have been looking for a third pastor. It was announced yesterday uh, at the church AGM, uh, and I gave a little bit of a brief update on the search. Uh, the process has been a bit slow and a bit challenging, 
But last night, I actually got some good news. Uh, we've found one. Uh, I got personal news from an old friend, though he retired a few years ago. He said he is willing to come out of retirement to come and help us. Some of you may know him. He's, uh, he's authored a couple of books. Um, he has spoken at the international conferences before. Uh, I call him Johnny. Most call him John Piper. <laughs> and yes, that is a joke. Right? But imagine with me for a second if John Piper was actually coming out of retirement to be a pastor here at SLE Church. He decides to move halfway around the world to help our little church. And I imagine, for those who know him, that there would be quite a bit of excitement. Imagine that he arrives. He does his John Piper thing, right? He preaches clearly, faithfully, intensely, passionately. He does his gesticulations that he's famous for. He writes and is able to lead our church to deeper relationships, deeper unity, more people coming, more growth, more love. Now imagine with me all of that for a moment, and at the same time that this is happening, most of us respond with meh. Sure, he preaches really, really well. Right? He, he's making some big positive impacts, but eh. Right? The majority of our church starts to then openly rebel against his ministry, openly defy his faithful teaching. Imagine being a visitor then to our church, right? Switching gears for a second. And you see all of that happening and that visitor, you, you coming into our church, you would be in your right mind to ask the question, what is going on? Now, okay, come back with me to the present, out of the imaginary world and into the real world where a real scenario is playing out. See, as we look at our passage, as we see a deacon named Stephen in the early church, uh, he's been preaching about Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah for God's people, the one their scriptures kept pointing to, right? the one whose death and resurrection cement him as the Messiah Savior. Right? This Jesus who has come, he has a message of God's love, forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, and that's been Stephen's message as well. But we see that the Jews continue to oppose that message. So why won't they connect the dots and see that Jesus is what they've been waiting for? What is going on? Now I'm going to copy Jordan's sermon from last week and give you the main point of this passage right here at the start. So here in our passage, we're going to see that the Jewish rejection of Jesus, it's typical of their long history. And their rejection of Jesus and his messenger, Stephen, is the catalyst that pushes the church beyond Jerusalem. So let me repeat that. The Jewish rejection of Jesus is typical of their history and the catalyst that pushes the church beyond Jerusalem. All right? So you want to fall asleep, you can come back to, you can fall asleep now. But for the rest of us, let's go on. Uh, before we get into actually Stephen's sermon, we start with the church again. So we're at point 1A in the outline if you have it with you. Now, over the past few weeks, we've seen how the church started at Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Then we saw it continue to grow and flourish. But now this perfect church hits a bit of a hurdle. Another internal issue props up. Two groups are beginning to argue against each other. And you find out why in chapter 6, verse 1. Right, chapter 6, verse 1, we see that there are two groups, Hellenists and Hebrews, Greeks 
and Jews. Right? You can see at the end of verse 1 the issue. Read again with me. The Greek widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So remember in the earlier chapters we saw new Christians willingly sell their property and generously uh, and charitably donating uh, the money to church, uh, to the church. And in, in a day of no social security net, no government agencies to do that kind of social work, it was up to the church to care for those who couldn't care for themselves. So it was the church that was distributing to the needy, the poor, the orphans, and the widows. But now the administration of those funds is showing, beginning to show some cracks. Right, and people were slipping through. So how do the apostles solve this problem? Do they, do they just roll up their sleeves and, and get harder to work? No, they delegate. They suggest to the church to pick out seven godly men, men of good reputation, who are believers, showing that they're full of the Spirit, and also demonstrate wisdom, you know, wisdom to administer uh, the funds in the right way. So why delegate? You'll see the reason uh, given in verse 2. It's not right for the apostles to give up, give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. They are, they're not saying that the apostles are too good to serve people, but their work of preaching and praying is vital for the health of the, and the future of the church. The day-to-day running of the church would just bog them down and they would have less time to be able to devote to, the pre- to preaching and praying. So the church is happy with the solution. They select seven men. Two men will focus on this week and next week. Stephen, as we'll see in this chapter this week, and Philip, who we'll meet next week. But before we move on to our next point, some final things to notice. First, notice the description of Stephen uh, in verse 5. A man full of faith, full of the faith and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Notice again here that another mention of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. We see the Spirit continue to work in the early church, appointing the right people to the right places. He helped appoint Matthias as the replacement apostle, and now Stephen's choice has the Spirit's fingerprints all over it as well. And notice finally in verse 7 again, the church continues to grow, increasing in number, and now even a great many priests become obedient to the faith. Right? We've, we've here, we here, have here the conversion of many priests from the temple. You know, while opposition comes from the Jews, we're being shown here ever so briefly that it's not all Jews who are the problem. There are some, even from the priesthood, who recognize who Jesus really is. But the final thing to notice in verse 7, where, where all of this is taking place. See, the church is multiplying and growing and see it right there in the middle of verse 7. It's all happening in Jerusalem. Do you remember Jesus' words from chapter 1, verse 8? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. See, the church here is doing great things. It's growing, but it's not moving out. So back to Stephen. He's appointed. He's helping the church. And look also in verse 8. He's doing great wonders and signs. How? I don't know. But like the other apostles, the ministry of the gospel here in the book of Acts is accompanied by all these wonderful signs. Now, this soon attracts the attention of some Jews. Basically, a group of Jewish converts from all across the Middle East start arguing with Jesus. But in verse 10, their arguments are falling flat against the wisdom and the spirit at work in Stephen. 
So they rope in the local Jewish scribes and the elders to arrest Stephen, and they bring him to what in Australia we would call a kangaroo court. Right? If you don't know what a kangaroo court is, it's a, it's a phrase to basically say that this is a, a dishonest and corrupt kind of trial that is being put on. Just like Jesus, false witnesses are paid off to bring false accusations against Stephen. Just like Jesus, some stuff is made up, and then other words are just kind of misquoted, misconstrued. To cut through all of what they're saying, it boils down to two basic accusations. Number one, the first accusation that they make is that Stephen was speaking blasphemous words against Moses. That his preaching was somehow trying to change the customs and the law that Moses gave to his people. Now, that's a big accusation. Moses was the hero of Israel. He was the one who led Israel out of Egypt, who gave them the law, who led them through the desert to the promised land. They are accusing Stephen of saying that Moses wasn't worth listening to. Now, to, gauge, to get a gauge on how offensive that would have been, and for the Singaporeans here, Imagine I said that Lee Kuan Yew was a terrible leader who did nothing for Singapore. For the Aussies here, imagine that I said Steve Irwin was a rubbish man who did nothing for animal welfare. That deeply offensive, right? They're accusing Stephen of saying sacrilegious things against their treasured person. The second accusation is that they, they make is that Stephen is speaking against the temple saying he's going to destroy the place. So if Moses was the treasured person for Israel, the temple was their treasured building. It was the place where God's presence dwelt among his people and there in the Holy of Holies. The temple represented connection between man and God. Imagine threatening to blow up Changi Airport or the Sydney Opera House, these national treasures. Of course, Stephen wasn't threatening that at all. He was probably quoting Jesus when Jesus referred to his body as the temple. Remember what he said? Tear down this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it back up again. That's what Jesus was saying. He was referring to his body, not the physical building there. It's so frustrating and infuriating, isn't it, when someone knowingly takes your words out of context, twists them, and throws them back at you. But look at how Stephen responds in verse 15. His face was like the face of an angel. Wow. In the face of these false accusations, there is serenity, peace, godliness, calm, a calm evident in his expression. Angelic is the only way to describe his expression in the face of such wickedness and false accusations. The spirit that has been actively at work in the previous chapters, here again at work in chapter 6, appointing the right people to serve the church, filling Stephen with such grace and working through him. The spirit continues to fill God's people and to be at work in them. And this spirit-filled follower of Jesus will now get his turn to answer the accusations in chapter 7, verse 1 onwards. Right, so in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest turns to this angelic-looking face. He stares him down and he asks, are these things true? Is this true? Yes or no? What do you say? The question is absorbed by Stephen. His calmness doesn't break. He hears 
and stands up before this sham of a court. He eyes off each man standing there, and then he opens his mouth to speak. And he launches into a massive sermon, the longest recorded speech in the book of Acts, 53 verses long. And it's a long, remarkable retelling of Israel's history. All the more remarkable, remember, because Stephen was not an OG Hebrew Jew. He was a Greek convert. So what does he say? Okay, to be clear, we're not going to go through every single detail. This might be Stephen preaching on Stephen, but you're not going to get every single detail. Right? We're going to be here forever if we did. This section uh, in the sermon is still, however, quite long uh, in the sermon outline and in this sermon uh, because there is a lot of ground to skip over. But hopefully we'll just hit some key points that Stephen uh, makes along the way, and in particular focus on the parts which directly answer the accusations made against him. So first... He begins his sermon by basically saying that the beginnings of Israel's history wasn't great to start with. So if you're not familiar with the names and the places mentioned here, that's okay. Let me give you the point that Stephen makes at the beginning. He's basically saying here at the beginning that when you look at the history of Israel and of how Israel began as a nation, you will find a people who have the habit of rejecting their saviors. Right from the beginning, Israel kept rejecting God's help. Now, to give you a breakdown of the first half of the sermon, it kind of looks a little bit like this, right? So in chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 8, he uh, opens with Abraham. Verses 9 to 16, he talks about Joseph, who was rejected by his brothers. 17 to 22, he references the birth of Moses. And then 23 to 29, we get Moses rejected by a fellow Israelites, his brothers. So Stephen begins uh, by briefly outlining how God chose Abraham and promised to him great things, especially that Abraham's future offspring would inherit a big land of their own. And then he skips forward to Abraham's great-grandchildren, 12 sons who he refers to as the 12 patriarchs. Then he talks briefly about Joseph, right? One of the boys, one of the 12 patriarchs, uh, one of the, in Egypt, and how he was raised up to, by God to help save Israel from famine. And then he moves on to the birth of Moses and his rescue and how ironically he was raised up in Pharaoh's own home. And then finally, in this opening part, he talks about Moses defending an Israelite by striking down an Egyptian, but ultimately being rejected by his fellow Israelites trying to help them. To get what Stephen's focus, uh, to what he's doing here, let's focus on a couple of key lines, right? Verse 9 in particular, the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph and sold him into slavery. The point that Stephen is making here is that the man who would eventually save his brothers is actually rejected by them. And then in verse 27, we've got two Israelites who say to Moses, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Again, the man who is going to save them from slavery in Egypt is here being rejected by them. Stephen is using these stories to illustrate this point. Israel, from its very beginnings had a bad habit of rejecting the very people who were going to save them. Now, from here, Stephen goes on the offensive. They accused him of saying bad things about Moses. Well, Stephen reminds them that Moses was constantly rejected by Israel. So again, if you don't know the story of Moses and the Exodus, well, that's okay. Here's the point he's making in this section. Moses is the man you look up to and speak so highly of, but Israel constantly rejected his leadership. 
Let's read again the key part where Stephen hammers home, uh, this, this point home. Have a look again with me at verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of an angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness within the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. You notice how each sentence here starts with this Moses, verse 35, this Moses, verse 36, this man, verse 37, this is the Moses, verse 29, this, uh, 39, this is the one. Like a hammer smashing an iron, Stephen is driving home that Moses is a special man unlike any other. He performed wonders and signs. He spoke with God. He received the law. Moses is this towering leader among the people. But in verse 39, Stephen drives the hammer home. Moses was so great, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead of following him out of Egypt to the promised land, their hearts turned back to Egypt. It is one of the saddest moments in the Exodus story. The nation is only weeks old. They have just been freed from slavery a few weeks before, but they start to grumble against Moses and wish to turn back to Egypt, back to slavery under Pharaoh. It is so sad. But then Stephen goes on. It wasn't just that generation of Israel that disobeyed Moses. It's pretty much all generations of Israel. So verse 40 to 41, Israel were waiting for Moses to give them the law and commandments and they lost faith and made themselves the golden calf to worship. And then you'll notice in verse 42 to 43 that Stephen quotes a prophet, the prophet Amos to be exact. So have a look at me again at verse 42 to 43. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So you notice here in verse 42 that this quote from Amos refers back to those wilderness years, the 40 years in the wilderness And then he goes on to condemn them in verse 43 for worshipping false gods. Here's what Stephen's doing, right? He's taking the start of Israel's history and he's connecting it to the near end of their history just before they went into exile. So like a long chain, he takes both ends and he links them together to form one. He's saying that from the beginning all the way through their history, right up to the exile, Israel had the constant habit of not listening to Moses and the law. They constantly rejected Moses, their savior, to worship other things. 
And we're getting this sense that their opposition to God and his appointed leaders is, is just so typically disappointing. They do it again and again, and they have done it for generations. So, answer the first accusation. Second accusation, you're saying bad stuff about the temple. So he turns out his attention to the temple in verses 44 to 50. He first mentions the tent that Moses had, the tabernacle that Joshua brought into the promised land and how David and Solomon built the stone building in the end. And he wants to say that the temple is nice and all, but in verses 48 to 50, he makes this point. God doesn't live in a building. Have a look at verse 48 again. Did the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says? Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house would you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God does not need four walls to live in. He does not need a chair on earth. Heaven is his throne. The entire earth is merely his footstool. There is no house that could be built to house an infinite God. What is the point that Stephen is making here? He's not condemning the temple. He's not talking bad about the place. He's saying the temple is nice, but you've basically made an idol out of it. You've put all your hope and trust and security in the bricks and mortar when the real and true and living God cannot be contained in a building. You've completely missed the point of why the temple exists. Not so that you can rely on the building to protect you, but so that you could access the infinite God who dwelled inside. Stephen is saying, you think I'm saying bad things about the temple? Well, you guys don't get why the temple is here in the first place. So in answer to the, question that he was, uh, in, to the question that he was saying bad things about Moses, Stephen says Israel had a history of not listening to Moses and rejecting him. In answer to the question that he was saying bad things about the temple, Stephen says the temple is great, but you guys have completely missed the point of the temple. And then in verse 51 to 53, he drives his main point home. This is the main point and purpose of his sermon. Chapter 7, verse 51 to 53. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in your hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Or they killed those, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He calls them stiff-necked. Some of us know what this physically, physically is like. As you get older, your body starts to have more aches and pains. Uh, my hand today, if you're a physio, I'd love to see you afterwards because I've done something to my hand. I was just carrying something and it's just hurting. Uh, I had one of the Sunday YFers who's like barely 21. Uh, his voice has only just finished breaking from puberty and he's telling me the other day that he woke up and he was feeling sore for no reason. And he's complaining about it. He's like, oh. <laughs> and here I am about to turn 41. I'm like, uh-huh, right? Some of us know what this is like to wake up with, with a stiff neck. It's like you feel like Batman in the early movies where you just kind of 
you, you just can't swivel your head. If you ever watch those movies, it's so funny. It's like, he's like looking like this. You have to swivel your entire body just to look in the right direction. To be stiff-necked spiritually is like that. You cannot turn your head. You cannot change your direction. You are set in your ways and set in rebellion against God. Stephen calls them uncircumcised in heart and ears. Circumcision was the act of showing you were wholly devoted to God. And here he calls them a bunch of people who are not devoted to God at all, not in their heart's desires, nor in their willingness to listen. He says that they always resist the Holy Spirit. They refuse to see the work of the Spirit right in front of their eyes, and not just once, but constantly. And so at the end of verse 51, as your fathers did, so do you. I just gave you a big history lesson of how Israel constantly rejected God and God's messengers, so typical of their history. But you know what? You Jews accusing me are no better. You're doing the same thing. Like father, like son. Sometimes children look like their fathers. Sometimes you can see the habits and quirks of children that they have gotten from their fathers. Stephen says that devastatingly, the Jews before him have picked up the worst habit of all, constantly rejecting God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham. Jesus is the greater prophet that Moses said would come after him. Jesus is the true fulfillment of the temple, the place where man and God meet together in perfect harmony. And their rejection of Stephen was a rejection of Jesus and a rejection of God. Feel the rage right now from the faces of those listening to Stephen. Luke tells us that they were enraged. They ground their teeth at him, clenching their jaws in pure anger, their their fists balling up, their, their heartbeats rising, the blood rushing to their head, the temperature rising from anger. But notice that it's, not, it's only when Stephen sees Jesus that they cry out and rush at him. And verse 54, we're told that he's so full of the Holy Spirit, he's given a special vision. He sees heaven open before him. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Not seated, standing. Standing in witness and defense of his servant. Standing in affirmation of Stephen. Stephen might be brought to his knees, but his saviour is standing in ready defence of his persecuted follower. And that must have been a comforting vision for Stephen, to know that his saviour was not leaving him nor forsaking him. Stephen shares his vision, and that is the straw that breaks the camel's back. The crowd rushes him, they grab him, they drag him out of the city, they pick up heavy stoners and they pummel him. It is a brutal way to die. But like his Lord, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And with his dying breaths, he prays for his persecutors, Lord, do not hold their sin against them. I noticed only last night as I reread this again in verse 60 that Stephen does not technically die. He falls asleep. Sleep is a, often used as a metaphor in the New Testament for Christian death because when you go to sleep, you expect to wake up. 
Stephen closed his eyes on earth and opened them again to see Jesus now standing before God, but walking towards him, arms outstretched, embracing him and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, what is the earthly result of the martyrdom of Stephen? We read in the opening verses of chapter 8 that a great, we read in the opening verses in, of uh, chapter 8 that a great persecution arose in the church in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, we read that the believers were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, all except the apostles. Jesus said that his disciples would be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it is Stephen's death, the death of this spirit-filled martyr, who is the catalyst for the mission moving forward. Here at the end, we get the final point of this passage. Jesus' rejection, Jewish rejection of Jesus is typical of their history. The Jews reject Stephen and they kill him, but his death pushes the church beyond Jerusalem. I think at the end of my time, when I close my eyes in death and open them to see Jesus, I want to do two things. First, I want to embrace Jesus. I want to thank him to feel the relief that everything he said was true. And then second, I want to go and find Stephen and maybe buy him a drink <laughs> or whatever the equivalent is in heaven, I don't know. Stephen died and then the gospel was pushed out of Jerusalem. Stephen gave his life and the mission advanced. I'm standing here, we are all here today because Stephen's life was not wasted in God's plans and purposes. This story is humbling, so I want to thank the man who laid down his life, which meant that the gospel went out and eventually made it all the way across the ends of the earth and through time and history and space to my ears and my heart and your ears and your heart. One final quick word before we finish and wrap up. There's a man that we meet right at the end here. He's mentioned three times. Saul, another Jew, a Pharisee, approving of Stephen's death and then participates in the great persecution, ravaging the church, dragging of men and women to prison. You'll notice that our passage today ends on a note of despair. But we know that Jesus is still king and Jesus is still at work. And we'll meet Saul again very soon. And his story will change the world forever. So, as we come to the end here, let's, uh, let's notice if some final things to wrap up and work out what we're meant to do with this. I think the first thing we're meant to do with this story is to be filled with awe. Stephen's sermon is a long and sad retelling of Israel's history, a long history of rejecting God and his messengers. Now, it might be tempting to read this and just look down on Israel and the Jews of Stephen's time and ask, why didn't you get it? But don't miss that within these stories is God patiently and persistently gracious with his wayward people. We should be shaking our heads in disappointment that Israel had such a bad history and we should also be humble in acknowledging that most likely we would not have done any better. Yet, don't also miss that God has constantly been there with and for his people. 
they may have rejected him and his plans and his purposes and his messengers uh, and his purpose to save his people to him, uh, save a people to himself through his son. All of that was not put on hold. Israel's failure did not stop God from fulfilling his plans. And that should leave us in awe and wonder. What an amazingly patient and persistently gracious God that we have. So patient with his people. And let's be honest. He's incredibly patient with us as well. Praise God that his persistence meant that Jesus did did come, was sent, and that the good news of Jesus has been preached to this very day. Praise God for his grace that would eventually work its way into each of our lives. Praise God for all of it. Yet there's also a warning in this story as well. See, while God was patient with his people, Stephen's speech warns us today to not oppose Jesus and the gospel. So some of us here might not have embraced Jesus as their king. And if that's you, then let me encourage you to find out more. And don't wait too long. Because the longer you go on in not listening, the further you will go on in opposing Jesus. The longer you go on not accepting Jesus, the easier it is to just keep rejecting him. Israel's long history of rejecting God and his messengers should put us on notice. The longer you reject God, the more likely you continue on that trend. The longer you reject God, the stiffer your neck will become, the harder your heart will be. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. There is change. Simply come to him in repentance and faith. Come and experience true life and joy. Would you do that today? Perhaps there is also a warning for those of us who claim to believe. We do our actions, and, but do our actions and our lives actually speak of opposition to Jesus rather than following? Do, our, do we nod our heads here at church, but at home it's just a different matter? Israel had a long track record of looking religious on the outside, but inwardly being corrupt to the core. How easy is that today? To follow, in, to follow in that way. Now, I'm not speaking here of Christians who stumble in sin, right? the sin we continue to battle with. I'm speaking here of the deep hypocrisy of claiming to follow Jesus, of looking the part, but having no desire to actually follow him. It's the person who listens to the sermons and constantly thinks of other people and how they should repent. Yes, Pastor Steve. Yes, Pastor Ben. Preach it so that David over there can listen. Yes, Sally over there really needs to hear this. But you never think of yourself. It's the person who hears the gospel and responds with, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I, know, I, I know all that. Let this passage today cut to your heart, convict you of the need to change. Because maybe today is the day you recognize that your life is actually in opposition to Jesus, not for him. And the final observation at the end here is comfort. Stephen is a model example of faith under persecution and death. He faces up to his death in a calm manner, trusting himself to Jesus with every step. And most of us won't face the threat of death for our faith, 
But there should be comfort for the persecuted believers that stand with Jesus, that Jesus stands with his people. We live in an increasingly hostile world, in a world that demands that everyone bends to its ideology and moral revolution, standing up to our culture's value to say, no, I will follow Jesus on this issue. It's going to take bravery and courage, and it may cost you. Cost you your job, your reputation, your friendships, and even family. But see the vision of Jesus here that Stephen saw right at the end, standing at the right hand of his father, standing in defense of his people. Let's pray that this vision of Jesus will encourage us to be faithful under pressure too. Jesus stands with us. He will never leave our side. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, your servant Stephen has given us an important sermon here in the book of Acts, a sermon in which he outlines a long history of rebellion against you, of hearts that have chosen not to listen. So as we have heard this sermon, we pray you'll help us assess our own hearts, help us to receive Jesus rightly as king, to follow him joyfully. And we pray that we would be faithful even under hardship and persecution when the demand to follow you comes at a big cost. We pray that you'll help us to see Jesus standing with us, defending us, and help us to see that final day too when all will bow before him as he comes and stands before us and defends us one last time forever. Help us to see and look forward to that day when we can be with him eternally. So, Father, help us to live rightly now. Help us to follow Jesus, to be comforted by this vision, to be encouraged to keep living for him. And for those among us who have yet to follow Jesus as king, help them to know him rightly, to see him through the pages of your word, to trust him. Father, we pray that you'll bless us as we keep reflecting on this word today. For we ask this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.